A note to my podcast feed listeners, what you're about to hear is another episode from the new series I've been working on called Short Reads. Short Reads is basically just me reading a passage from a work of philosophical literature and then offering a few brief insights into the text afterward to help you think about the text and to find ways to apply the concepts in your own life. These episodes are released weekly, and as an Anchor podcast listener, I encourage you to keep listening as long as you like them. If you're finding the series especially enjoyable, I'd like to invite you to head on over to my Locals community page at exitingthecave.locals.com, where you can become a subscriber. A $3 subscription will give you early access to these episodes, as well as to my videos, to my philosophical musings in essay form, and especially to a community of other like-minded listeners where you can discuss these podcasts or any other philosophical topics you find compelling. I'm looking forward to meeting you over there. Now, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Exiting the Cave Short Reads. The Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius continues today with the recapitulation of the critique of earthly glory. Today's readings are quite short, but the subject is a huge one. Let's listen in and hear what Lady Philosophy has to say. Again, how misleading, how base a thing oft-times is glory. Well does the tragic poet exclaim, O fond repute, how many a time and oft hast them raised high in pride the base-born churl. For many have won a great name through the mistaken beliefs of the multitude, and what can be imagined more shameful than that? Nay, They who are praised falsely must needs themselves blush at their own praises. And even when praise is won by merit, still, how does it add to the good conscience of the wise man who measures his good not by popular repute, but by the truth of inner conviction? And if at all it does seem a fair thing to get the same renown spread abroad, it follows that any failure so to spread it is held foul. But if, as I set forth but now, there must needs be many tribes and peoples whom the fame of any single man cannot reach, it follows that he whom thou esteemest glorious seems all inglorious in a neighboring quarter of the globe. As to popular favor, I do not think it even worth of mention in this place, since it never cometh of judgment and never lasteth steadily. Then, again, who does not see how empty, how foolish, is the fame of noble birth? Why, if the nobility is based on renown, the renown is another's. For truly, nobility seems to be a sort of reputation coming from the merits of ancestors. But if it is the praise which brings renown, of necessity it is they who are praised that are famous. Wherefore, the fame of another clothes thee not with splendor if thou hast none of thine own. So if there is any excellence in nobility of birth, methinks it is in this alone, 
that it would seem to impose upon the nobly born the obligation not to degenerate from the virtue of their ancestors. All men are of one kindred stock, though scattered far and wide. For one is father of us all, one doth for all provide. He gave the sun his golden beams, the moon her silver horn. He set mankind upon the earth, as stars the heavens adorn. He shut a soul, a heaven-born soul, within the body's frame. The noble origin he gave, each mortal white may claim. Why boast ye then so loud of race and high ancestral line? If ye behold your being's source and God's supreme design, none is degenerate, none base, unless by taint of sin and cherished vice he foully stain his heavenly origin. The dictionary provides definitions of glory for both of the usual senses by which we understand the term. First, high renown, honor, or praise won by notable achievements. Second, magnificent beauty, luminosity, or splendor. This is often associated with the bliss of heaven itself. This chapter contrasts these two definitions using the prose for the first definition and the verse for the second. Lady Philosophy gives an explanation for the first definition in her monologue that should sound familiar by now, to wit, that any earthly pursuit, in this case glory, is going to be insufficient to happiness because it is incomplete in the sense of lacking absolute totality and because it is an external and therefore uncontrollable prerequisite, and therefore could only be a false friend to happiness. But what of unearthly glory? Here, Lady Philosophy's verse makes it clear that the only path to true glory, and thus true happiness, is reunion with God. In effect, to find happiness, one must reflect the glory of God by looking into the face of God himself. I'm no theologian. <laughs> I'm a mere philosopher and an amateur one at that. So, to explore the meaning of glory as it relates to God, therefore, I've decided to hand you off to someone who knows what she's talking about. Paula Gooder is an extremely skilled and insightful New Testament scholar and Oxford theologian in the Anglican tradition. In 2015, she gave a lecture to the Greenbelt Ideas Festival, in which she offered, near the end of her talk, a fantastic exploration of the question of what it means to attain glory in the religious sense. Though Boethius is not a part of this lecture, there are some clear connections between her talk and the consolation. For starters, pay attention to her description of Moses in the snippet that follows me. Note again the trope of going up a mountain, as is also present in Dante. Notice the necessity for turning around in order to orient oneself toward God, and see how Paul's attempt to universalize the idea of divine glory is a good response to Lady Philosophy's insistence on absolute totalities in the pursuit of true happiness. 
It seems to me that Boethius was at least as familiar with the scriptures as Dr. Gooder, given the hints we see in the consolation. But I'll let you decide that. Have a listen to Dr. Gooder and let me know whether you think I'm on the right track or not. And I will see you next week. And what's really wonderful about the passage of Exodus 34 is that as Moses goes to the top of the mountain and he spends time in the presence of God, when he comes down, his face is shining. It's a lovely, lovely story. So he's at the top of the mountain encountering God. And when he comes down from the top of the mountain, his face shines. What that means is God's glory is infectious. You spend time in the presence of God and you are infected by what makes God's glory God's glory. What's the essence of God's glory? God's glory shines like stars do. So God's glory is essentially shiny. So when Moses encounters the full glory of God, what happens to Moses? He shines. It's a lovely, lovely image. And what is fascinating is that Paul, when he's thinking about this passage, picks it up in 2 Corinthians 3. And one of the ways in which um, 2 Corinthians 3 is intriguing is that it appears to be an early example of Paul doing his own exegesis. He is expounding Exodus 34. And what you can see is Paul is playing with the themes of the shininess of Moses' face. And what happens in um, 2 Corinthians 3 is Paul is playing with the idea of what happens when glory occurs, what happens when glory begins to shine. And one of the things that he begins to do is begin to think about veils, which we won't talk about this evening um, because they're kind of rather complicated in 2 Corinthians 3. But there's something really beautiful and really significant happens when Paul gets close to the end of 2 Corinthians 3. He's been talking about Moses and shininess and glory and the importance of that. And then he says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, that is a direct quotation from Exodus 34, because what Exodus 34 says is when Moses goes to the top of the mountain, um, he would encounter God. And then when he came down from the mountain, his face would be veiled. And then when he went back up to the mountain, he took his veil off again and he encountered God. But what Paul does in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 16 is he suddenly does a remarkable bit of sideways step of exegesis, which for those of us who care about these things get really excited about. Because the really important thing about Moses is that only Moses could encounter God. Only Moses could go to the top of the hill. And by the time you get later on in your Jewish tradition, it becomes a really significant thing that special Jewish men were the ones who could encounter God. What Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 16 is when anyone turns to the Lord they encounter the glory of God. And what Paul is saying is, actually, any of you can now have a Moses experience. Any of you can stand in the presence of God and be infected by the glory of God. And then he goes on in um, verse 18, which is probably the most famous verse of 2 Corinthians 3, which many of you will know. Um, and I'm just going to read it to you um, so to, to remind you of it. And in case you're thinking, I don't recognise this translation, you won't because it's mine. <laughs> and I translate it like this because I want to pull out a few things for you because I think it's a really, really significant verse. And we all, with faces that have been unveiled 
gaze and reflect the glory of the Lord, we are being transfigured into the same image from glory into glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. What Paul's talking about there is this wonderful theological idea, which for me is kind of what keeps me going in my spiritual journey, is that we stand in the presence of God. And just stop for a moment and let me say this again. I've said it once, but let me say it again because you really have to appreciate quite how important it is. Special Jewish men could stand in the presence of God and be infected by the glory of God. Paul says, and we all... In case you haven't noticed, I'm not a special Jewish man. There may be a special Jewish man in our audience today, which would be lovely, but most of us can't claim that for one or more reasons. Um, I have all three. But Paul says, and we all forget the notion now that there is special privilege for particular people within a Jew, within a Christian tradition, within a Jewish tradition, within a faith tradition. Actually, now it is avail- available for all of us to stand in the presence of God and be infected by the glory of God. And then he goes on and says, um, well, what does he say? There's a really interesting one. Um, I've translated it as we gaze on and reflect I mean, it's a pretty much a rule of thumb in the New Testament that the more important a word is, the harder it is to put it into English. And this is one of those words. Um, the Greek word, in case you're interested, I'm sure you're all sitting there going, now I wonder what that Greek word is. Let me tell you. It's the Greek word katoktridzomenoi, which is lovely, isn't it? Doesn't that sound great? And the Greek word um can either be translated as we gaze on or it can be translated as we reflect if, you're, if you know about these technical things, it's a middle. Um, and what middles do, they're kind of a self-reflexive verb. So it can either mean we look at, or it can mean we reflect. And if you get the idea, gazing and reflecting are a similar kind of thing. Think about a mirror. When you are looking at a mirror, are you gazing or are you reflecting? The answer is yes, of course you are. The point about it is you gaze, and as you gaze, you reflect, and as you reflect, you gaze, and as you gaze, you reflect. It's like one of those kind of lovely um, conundrums that you had as a child. You know, you have two mirrors next to each other, and they go smaller and smaller off into infinity. What Paul is saying here is we all, with faces, both gaze on the glory of God, and as we gaze on the glory of God, we reflect the glory of God, and as we reflect the glory of God, we gaze on the glory of God, and as we gaze on the glory of God, we reflect the glory of God. So if you want to know how you glimpse the glory of God, can I just say I am basking currently in the glorious splendour of the glory of God. What Paul says is that we can all now stand unveiled in God's presence, behold and reflect and reflect and behold that glorious splendour of the deep essence of God. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful image that what Paul has in his mind is that glimpsing glory for those who are in Christ has become phenomenally easy. What we need to do is look in the faces of our brothers and sisters 
and there we see unveiled glory, the true essence of who God is. And it's a remarkable and really quite challenging piece of theology for us to think about. And yes, I'm not just saying that you find God in um, the brothers and sisters who are in Christ, but it is an important thing that Paul is saying, that we need to become people who are really good at looking for glimpses of glory in the faces that we see around us. Can you honestly say there is a glorious picture of the image of God? Can you honestly say that in those faces we truly encounter who God is? And it's, a, like I say, it's an inspiring and challenging. On the one hand, the inspiring bit is look a bit harder. If you go, no, 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 I've looked out, there's definitely no glory today. Um, the answer is, well, you're not looking hard enough. Look back. Can you see it now? The challenging bit is, what if actually there's not a lot of glory shining in our world? What if actually we are the people who are preventing that glory shining forth? Um, and there seems to me to be kind of a virtuous and unvirtuous circle going on. If we are people who are good at glimpsing glory, then we are people who become people who are reflecting glory. And as we reflect it, we're better at glimpsing it. And as we glimpse it, we're better at reflecting it. And on it goes. But actually, if we become communities where the glory fades... Um, then actually we are communities in which God's glory is not shining forth in the world. And that seems to me to be a terrible, terrible crime, a terrible sin, I would put it in such words, that actually we are preventing the glory of God shining in the world. When we become splendorous in our own eyes, when we are shining our own glory, maybe that's when the glory of God is hidden from our eyes. And what would happen if we could become more people who are infected by the glory of God, who become people who are so much in God's presence that we shine God's glory out into the world. We become good at seeing it. We become good at reflecting it. And as we reflect it, then the glory begins to grow and grow and shine and shine. What if we become that kind of people? But let me end by reading to you 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18 again. And we all, with faces that have been unveiled, gaze and reflect on the glory of the Lord. We are being transfigured into the same image from glory into glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit.